I love how I was, as we closed in prayer with the children, one of the ch- children was just prostrate on the floor. He's like, wow, that's really pious, you know, for a closing prayer. <laughs> Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms and to my own mom who may listen to this audio. There are a lot of people here who think they have the best mom in the world, but I know that I do. And uh, just abuse this whole position just to say that. (laughs) Um, Love you, Mom. Happy Mother's Day. Um, Well, this is a particularly heavy gospel reading today, isn't it? Luke 12, 1 through 12. I mean, um, Jesus talks about a lot of things in this passage that our contemporary ears find it hard to hear. About final judgment, about hell, about the fear of the Lord and being unashamed to confess Christ in public. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus drops this troubling phrase that anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So I'm going to invite John up here to preach on this one. <laughs> so that's a good thing about having such an excellent preacher that you're church planting with. You know, come on. Uh, just, uh. Now, actually, uh, a second option is I, I considered whether I should, um, I shouldn't like just like just not prepare today and just quote verses 11 and 12 as my justification. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. <laughs> now, that's not really treating, you know, the Scriptures according to its context, but, you know, it's just a good verse for an unprepared preacher to, to quote. <laughs> so I, I'm joking, but, but, but as I say again, um, I, I do think that Jesus' words here are heavy today. Um, they're offensive to Western religious sensibilities in the 21st century. I mean, open any newspaper or click on any TV and the message is clear. We would prefer not to believe in, we, excuse me, we would prefer to believe in a religion that doesn't exclude, a hell that doesn't exist, and a God who always forgives, no matter how blasphemous we are. The British journalist Steve Turner, who used to cover the Beatles and write for Rolling Stone, sarcastically commented, We believe that all religions are basically the same. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. (laughs) So it seems right that we have this vested interest in believing that all the religions are essentially the same, even if the facts say otherwise. N.T. Wright says that in today's religious climate, that many people now get every bit as steamed up about insisting that all religions are just the same, as the older dogmaticians did about insisting that their particular, uh, in their particular formulations, right? They get every bit esteemed about saying, no, like they're all the same as, as people used to get about saying, no, well, this is really the true way, right? So today's dogma says, right, is that all dogmas are equally wrong. In other words, we hear things like, it's wrong to think that your religion is absolutely right. And when we ask, are you sure about that? The response is, yes, absolutely. (laughs) So in the West, we're so eager to stress that religion is culturally bound, 
that we fail to see that religious relativism is actually culturally bound. On one occasion, the Notre Dame professor of philosophy, Alvin Plantinga, was publicly defending the Christian faith, and a man from the audience retorted, If you were born in the Middle East, you wouldn't be a Christian. And Plantinga responded, Maybe, but if you were born in the Middle East, you wouldn't be a religious relativist. <laughs> so what's my point in saying all this? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, you will naturally take his words seriously, even when they cut against the religious climate of your day. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, you can't easily dismiss him just because his words are exclusive. That would be a very dogmatic thing to do, a very culturally conditioned Western response to religion. And if we're willing to give Jesus a fresh hearing this morning, I think we'll find it that even his hard teachings are different than what we expected. If you would please open with me to Luke 12, 1 through 12. I want to highlight three things from Jesus' words in this passage. And the first is that final judgment is good news. It's actually good news. Look with me, if you would, at verses 1 through 3. Jesus says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The word hypocrite at that time was associated with the profession of acting. Literally, a hypocrite was a play actor. And Jesus was actually the first recorded person in history to use the term hypocrite as a term of, a, of religious critique. And so in calling the Pharisees hypocrites, Jesus is saying that they're actors, that they're fakers, that they're masquerading as if they're men of God when in fact they're not. And the worst part was, according to Jesus, that their influence was like yeast that spread through the whole lump of dough. It was causing the masses to stumble into religiosity and to neglect weighty matters like justice and the love of God, as John preached last week. But there's good news, Jesus says, and the good news, strangely to us, is final judgment. Because final judgment says that one day God will lift the masks of the hypocrites and expose the truth for all to see. Look with me at these four words that Jesus uses in association with final judgment. In verse 2, he uses the words revealed and be known. In verse 3, he uses the words light and proclaim. So final judgment is associated with the revelation of God when hidden things will be known, when light will shine in dark places, and where truth will be proclaimed from the housetop. Those sound like pretty good things, amen? So in recent years, it's become popular for Christians to use kingdom language when talking about the world and the Bible. It's increasingly popular. wasn't so as much 20 years ago, but it's increasingly popular. And I, for one, invite this trend because that's the way that Jesus spoke. He announced the kingdom of God. He embodied the kingdom of God. However, many of us are not aware that when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that we're inviting God to come down and judge the world, to sort things out, for Jesus to come down in his divine justice and separate the sheep from the goats and to set the world right. In the early church, there was an affinity, as I mentioned to the children earlier, for this Aramaic phrase, Maranatha. It became a common greeting among oppressed believers. 
Maranatha, it literally meant, our Lord has come. But it was also used as a plea, Lord, come quickly. These early believers had this heartfelt desire from the center of themselves that they wanted the Lord to come back. They wanted Him to come back quickly. They were longing for Him. Do we long for the return of Jesus? Do we have that sense of longing for His return? Or have we become so cozied up to the ways of the world that we'd rather He just kind of like left us alone? Today, the cry for justice around the world is as strong as it's ever been. And Jesus intended, intended that the message of God's judgment would be received as a message of hope, that he can set things right. Just listen to the Beatitudes in Luke 6. He said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. So when God's kingdom comes in fullness, it will come with justice, equality, vindication for those who have been falsely accused and excluded. It's good news. So that's point number one. Final justice is actually good news. But of course, I don't need to say that it's not good news for everyone. The Beatitudes also issue warnings. But woe to you who are rich, who have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. This warning from Luke 6 brings us to our second point in Luke 12, which is that Jesus teaches us to fear the God who loves us. Does that sound strange? That's what Jesus is saying here, isn't it? That we should fear the God who loves us. Look with me at verses 4 through 7. And here Jesus argues... You can see from the lesser to the greater. He actually does this twice in this section. The first time is to point out that we should have an appropriate fear of God. The second time is to highlight the love of God. So the first time he says, Do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. They're the lesser. But I warn you whom to fear. I will warn you, Jesus says, what's of greater concern than being killed. Fear him who after he has killed the body has authority to cast into hell. Now it's, it's a simple argument, really. Even a child can understand it. My, fr- my friend uh, Brian Sanders, who has a way with words, put it this way. He said, Are you going to fear the chihuahua who's yapping at your heels or the pit bull who's growling in the direction of your crotch? <laughs> told you he has a way with words. <laughs> and isn't it an absurd thing, as Jesus points out, that a lot of times we act more afraid of the chihuahua, right? The fear of man is, is a plague in the church today. We're worried about what the media thinks about us, what our Facebook friends will think about us, and how we'll think about ourselves if other people don't like us, right? The fear of man is a cruel tyrant, On the other hand, Psalm 19 says that the fear of the Lord is pure. 
It's pure. There's a pure fear that drives out the tyrannical fear of man and restores order to one's life. Jerry Bridges, who was a longtime staff member with the Navigators Campus Ministry, wrote a book with a title that may sound odd to us. It's called The Joy of Fearing God. And he says this, There was a time when committed Christians were known as God-fearing people. This was a badge of honor, but somewhere along the way we lost it. Now the idea of fearing God, if thought of at all, seems like a relic from the past. Bridges even says that fearing one's parents and knowing that they love you are not incompatible. Our culture has shifted so much on this in recent years, I think. And I, I know I'm a young man, but I just want to say when I was your age. <laughs> no, for real. When I was a kid, you dreaded the principal's office not because you were afraid of the principal, but because you were afraid of your mom. <laughs> so the common phrase was, you think you're in trouble now, wait till you get home. Right? Now kids are like, I can't wait till I get home to my softy parents so they can eat up every word that I say and then call the school to change my grades for me. I mean, is that wrong? Now let me just back up a little bit. I think our children should absolutely know our deep love for them. But call me old school. I think our children should actually be a bit afraid of their parents. I mean, not like trembling or timid or just afraid when they're in the home. Absolutely not. But they should be somewhat afraid of their parents. Man, I was afraid of my dad. I was afraid of my mom. And I had no doubt that they loved me. No doubt at all. Why? Why was I afraid? Because I was a sinner. And they, the authority that they had was real. And because sometimes I did stupid or selfish things or I was mean to my sister, and my dad had the God-given authority, nay, the responsibility to judge the situation and to discipline and to set things right. They even spanked me and I still love them. Can you believe it? <laughs> Hebrews 12 says that the Father disciplines those whom He loves. If we don't receive discipline from God the Father, we're illegitimate children. Now that doesn't mean that parents will never make mistakes. But their roles as lovers and as judges in the home is a reflection of our true judge and the lover of our souls, God the Father, who never makes a mistake. His love never fails. Jesus isn't talking about the devil here, by the way. He's talking about God, who will one day judge the devil as well. And he's not actually talking about a pit bull. He's talking about the one who bled and died for us. The fear of man is not the only fear that plagues us. We're also afraid that if God exists, that he doesn't really love us. That's another fear that we have, that he doesn't really love us. And Jesus wants to assure us in this passage that the God we're called to fear is the God who loves us. That's the point of his second lesser to greater argument in verses 6 and 7. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Now, it's hypothesized that sparrows are the most common of all land birds. And yet Jesus says, and not one of them 
is forgotten before God. Not one of the sparrows that's flying about is forgotten by God. Why, even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. So in case we're worried that the one who will judge is cruel or capricious, Jesus assures us of the value that we have in the Father's eyes. If you're a parent, and especially maybe for new parents especially, um, I'll bet you've spent time admiring your children while they're sleeping. It's like you put them down and you're like, they got to get down, all right? I, I really want them to sleep here. You don't want to wake them up, but every once in a while you just kind of want to look in on them, you know, and just kind of look over them and watch over them and you just admire them and love them in your heart. Well, that's kind of what Jesus is saying. I mean, he's saying even the hairs on your head are numbered. That's God's heart towards you. Fear not. You're of more value than many sparrows. The Father knows all the hairs on your head. The God we're called to fear is the God who loves us. The judge of the world is the lover of our souls. Jesus is speaking in ways that we don't usually speak here. So that's the second point. And finally, Jesus teaches us that our earthly allegiance has heavenly implications. Verses 8 and 9. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Our earthly alignment with Jesus, or lack thereof, has eternal consequences. That's what Jesus is saying. Before the angels of God. This is throne room imagery. This is judgment seat imagery. That's the last place that any of us would want to be told by Jesus, I never knew you. But is Jesus talking about a one-time denial? <coughs> like if you were part of the crowd that shouted, crucify him, were you lost forever? No. He goes on to clarify that this is not the case. Verse 10, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. So remember, Peter denied Jesus three times. He denied even knowing him three times. But he was forgiven, and he was restored. I want to tell you guys a story that I'm actually ashamed of. Um, and uh, uh, a few weeks ago, my friend Carter came and preached here on um, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And uh, I remember I was sharing Christ with him in college, and when he came to, to know Jesus, I was so excited um, and then a few months after that, um, he and I were uh, in the philosophy school together, and there was this philosophy event in downtown um, Jacksonville in Five Points. And we were in this trendy coffee shop, and there was this philosopher that was speaking to a room full of people, and it was a much less formal environment than a classroom. And I remember he, like, started his talk by saying, how many of you guys think that the Bible is the infallible word of God? You know, he just kind of had this smirk on his face and he just kind of raised his hand like this, right? And uh, I just remember kind of sitting there because I'm like, well, I don't know what that means to him. Like, I don't know what he thinks that means. It probably, probably wouldn't mean the same thing that I meant. So I'm just kind of like sitting on my hands. And then I turn my head and Carter is sitting there with his hand up like this. And I was like, this guy just came to know the Lord a few months ago. I'm like, oh my, I actually... When I saw him do that, I really admired him, and I knew that 
that I had done wrong. I was ashamed of myself. Because what I failed to see was that this man wasn't trying to be nuanced. He was publicly drawing a line in the sand. And as I looked at my friend Carter raising his hand alone in that pressurized context, I not only admired him greatly, I just felt ashamed of myself. Because of the fear of man, I failed to acknowledge the Son of Man. And I'm ashamed of that story, but I share it with you today. Because like Peter, I just want to tell you, I've mourned over that denial of the Lord. I've sought His restoration and I've trusted His cross. At the cross, there's full pardon and forgiveness of sins, even for those, Jesus says, who speak a word against the Son of Man. However, Jesus says, the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, this is confusing. Is this just like an exchange of terms so you can deny the second person of the Trinity but not the third person? Is that what's going on here? This is where it gets tough for us, I think, because if we're honest, modern Americans tend to view God more as a forgiveness machine. So we feel like it's God's job description to forgive, and he's not allowed to go against that without ceasing to, believe, without ceasing to be God. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, as is made even more clear in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, is not simply a slip-up or like a moment of rebellion. It's a whole-life orientation away from the things of God. So it's looking straight into the light and calling it darkness. It's witnessing the works of Jesus, the miraculous works and healings of Jesus, and calling them the works of Satan. It's seeing God face to face and being revolted by what you see. Such a person would never be at home in heaven. And Jesus warns such a person never will be. Our earthly allegiance has heavenly implications. There's a lot more I could say about this, and I will preach on the sad topic of hell later on in the Gospel of Luke, but for now, let me summarize and draw to a close. We began by discussing the scandal of making exclusive religious claims in this secular West, and I pointed out the hypocrisy that to claim that there are no dogmas in itself is a dogma, that we're pressured to believe the dogma of religious relativism with all the pressure that the secularists, that the secularists claim to despise among traditional religions, that pressure, that pressure. In the end, it's truth, not our cultural sensibilities that matter most. And I pointed to three truths that Jesus gives us in Luke 12, 1 through 12. Number one, that final judgment is good news. It's actually good news for those who are longing for God's justice, for those who are longing for the world to be set right. Number two, that we're called to fear the God who loves us. He's the ultimate judge, but Jesus assures us that we have such great value in his eyes. And lastly, he warned us that our earthly allegiance has heavenly implications. And I close with this. So earlier I shared with you a story where I denied the word of God out of fear of man. And I want to say that since then, the Lord has given me plenty of opportunities to acknowledge Jesus before man. 
and usually it's been very non-confrontational, but sometimes it involves confrontation. And often it's been well-received, but sometimes it's caused tension. Almost always it's sprung from a love for people, however imperfect, and a fear and love of God. Listen, brothers and sisters, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus said. And the culture around you will never be accepting of such an exclusive claim. So if you're waiting for that, you're waiting in vain. But Jesus' words about judgment and hell and salvation draw a line in the sand. Where do you stand?